0: trail and ultra runners what is going on what's happening welcome to another episode of the coop cast as always i'm your humble host coach jason coop and this episode of the podcast is coming to you recorded out of the mobile base camp, my adventure van, my mobile recording studio. I'm on my way to the canyons 100K and 100 mile events to support a number of CTS athletes, but that does not stop the show from going on. And today we have a good one, and Andy Kirkland, who is somebody that I have looked up to in the coaching space for a long period of time for his quick wit and no holds barred approach to providing some reasonable criticism across coaching and coaching structure. Now, for those of you that don't know Andy, Andy originally started out as a sports scientist at the Scottish Institute of Sport. He then worked for British Cycling and is now a lecturer in sports coaching at the University of Sterling. And this is one of the more unique programs around the world where they are actually educating the next group of coaches to work work with athletes. Andy has been involved in every single level of sport, ranging from young children, uh, teaching them how to swim, to working with developmental and professional athletes. Now, what brings Andy on the podcast today is his newest paper that caught my eye, the title of which is An Exploration of Context and Learning in Endurance Sports Coaching. This paper was thought-provoking enough for me as a professional coach, as well as a mentor and manager of coaches, that I shared that paper across our entire coaching group, and I wanted to bring him on the podcast podcast to get his thoughts and perspectives on coach development and the coaching marketplace in general. As I mentioned earlier, Andy has a quick tongue. He's not afraid to deliver reasonable criticism of coaching and coaching structure. And that is something that I think we in the ultra running space need to get accustomed to. It's the professional criticism and critique of why we are doing what we are doing that is ultimately gonna make coaches and athletes better. And we need to be mindful of that in a cottage industry, especially in an emerging one such as ultra running. And all too often we take this professional criticism, which I have delivered on a number of occasions as a personal one. When in fact it is not, it is just that it is professional. It is just professional criticism. Okay, with that out of the way, I am going to get right out of the way. Here is my conversation with Andy Kirkland, all about how we learn as coaches and how we should be developing ourselves as professionals. Well, if you're ever here, uh, we should go on a trail run or a bike rider. I'll take you up the incline. How's that?
1: Oh, That that would be cool. I've actually got an invite from Joe Freil as well, if I come across, for us to go and play <laughs> golf in Arizona. So, and I, I've promised him the same uh, on the east coast of Scotland, where we've got the best golf in the world. Uh, I
0: was about to say, you guys have really good golf there. So Arizona is yeah. known for its golf, but you guys have really good golf there. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well we're we're not gonna talk about golf. We're gonna talk about coaching a little bit. Um and, no. <laughs> and, uh, we're neither of us are experts in golf, but I think we can both qualify as domain experts in coaching. You and I have both been in the in the arena for a long period of time and you just mentioned our mutual mm. colleague Joe, who's been in the arena for a long period of time as well as his son Dirk for a long period of time. And I Yeah, I, as long as I can remember. <laughs> Well, I think that that length of experience, it kind of gives you a little bit of license to discuss the just the coaching arena in general, because it has it has changed a lot over the course of the last, you know, my career is going on 25 years now. Um, and, um, a lot of those times, those changes happen, happen kind of in different phases where one thing starts to leapfrog (laughs) the other. And then the, the athletes, you know, develop along a certain time course and the commercial space develops along another time course. And then the needs of the athlete develop along a time course. And I think the research that you just did, um, that we're going to talk about today kind of starts to uncover a little bit of those timeline discrepancies in, What the athletes and the coaches are actually saying to you in terms of what they want and what they need and how they're educated Mm -hmm. and things like that. But before we get into it too much, because the listeners aren't going to be familiar, most of the listeners aren't going to be familiar with the study itself. This is a big effort. Like when I was reading just the participants like that's the yeah. one that's the one thing that I kept coming away with is that this was a big effort to get in touch with this many people and to to gather this amount of information. So can you start to first like lay the landscape of what the survey was and how many people and the the, the kind of the scope of people that you were actually uh, interfacing with?
1: Absolutely. So I, I think it's useful to talk about where the uh, project came from as well. Uh, and uh, as you've alluded to, we've been in the landscape for many moons now, uh, including a few blue ones. And I've worked in environments like British Cycling as a coach developer in various different environments that uh, and as an academic in the coaching world, and not just the endurance coaching world, but broad sports world. Uh, and there was absolutely nothing out there to uh, describe and explore the world that we operate within. And I, I perceive that to be a, a problem in which uh, my conceptualization of coaching is it's a profession. We need to be expert at what we do. Uh, and there was clear gaps in knowledge and expertise within the wider profession Uh, and some some of that related to how we educate coaches internationally, Uh, so that broad international context. I'm in Scotland but uh, I think it's Probably coach development in the US is more diffuse than it is in the UK. Uh, and I'm quite critical of it in the UK. Uh, but we've got very similar structures in New Zealand, Australia, uh, and such. And I thought, uh, to, to do more research in that area, first of all, requires foundations. We need foundational description of that context. And, and there was very little out there in the academic literature uh, exploring coaching in the endurance world. So I thought that was a really important gap to fill before we start developing more empirical work to uh, look at things like coach-athlete relationships in the endurance world. So it was all about laying those foundations. Uh, now, I worked on developing a broad survey uh, in which we hit nearly ten thousand people. Yeah. Uh, so, in my space as well, that's absolutely unprecedented. A hundred percent. Yeah. Tends to get that uh, many people. Primarily, uh, they were non. Coached athletes, uh, so that was the majority of the respondents. Uh, had about a th- just over a thousand coached athletes and 800 coaches, I think, off the top of my head. I've not got the paper open. So yeah. it, it, it was a big survey. Now, a paper goes through a peer review process as well so there's reviewers reading it and asking questions and one of their questions was yeah it's a huge survey uh, but what relevance have non-coached athletes uh, got in that environment why have you included them in the study and I suggested that it's really important to understand the the landscape that we operate within what uh, coaches coached athletes non-coached athletes perceive our world to look like uh, so, so that's what uh, we did the reason I think I, I got so many participants is probably testament to uh, my relationships in our world that I know quite a lot of people uh, I know a few top athletes who tweeted that I've got a million plus followers so, so that's kind of helpful too uh, so, but the the project was years in building so uh, f- f- what came out is the tip of the iceberg and what's under the ocean was years and years of developing relationships with people in the endurance coaching
0: world and so the a- the aim is is to try to figure out how coaches learn and then in addition to that how the athletes also receive that training, whether they are coached athletes or non-coached athletes. And one of the real stark like contrasts that this that this study kind of points out is there's this mismatch between what the various education models require of the coach, like what the, whether it's through an NGB or through an external certification or even training peaks as their own, you know, type of internal certification as well and then what the what the coaches actually asked to do. And I know I noticed this from a couple of different perspectives. First off, I've probably hired, you know, over 100 coaches at this point and they come from a huge variety of backgrounds. All the mm. way from athletes that are transitioning into coaching, people who kind of grew up knowing that they wanted to be a coach, whether or not they had a formal Education in that arena, whether that actually exists or not. I mean, you have one of the few programs in the world where you're actually developing coaches from a, from an educational perspective. That's that's very mm-hmm. that's very atypical, especially uh, in in the United States. And then we also have career transitioners, where they were, you know, a teacher or a you know bricklayer or whatever for the first part of their career, and then all of a sudden they decided mm-hmm. that that they want to be a coach, and and melding together all of the an educational model that. Um, would suit the needs of all of those individuals, even if you had the right endpoints is extremely, is extremely prob- problematic. But I think what your study kind of pointed out like from the onset of what, what, what I noticed is that there's this very stark contrast between how those educational models are built and then what the coaches were, are actually asked to do on a daily, on a weekly, on a monthly basis when they're interfacing with their athletes. And I'm wondering if you can explain that a little bit, that discrepancy a little bit further and how we might go about developing education models in the future so that that gap isn't so big.
1: Absolutely. And uh, uh, the, the challenge is a stark one. It's a stark one for me on the program that I work on at the University of Stirling as well, where one coach may be working in the united states on a soccer program with 3000 kids on it and uh, i'll big up the program and say that one of our coaches was uh, head coach of the pit lane crew of mclaren f1 so, <laughs> so that <laughs> so we've got to be able to differentiate from for these people in developing programs but the educational uh, theory really tells us that the, the most important thing Uh, in helping others learn is their pre-existing knowledge, what they already know and how to develop it from that point to the point where uh, they're able to fulfil their coaching role. And probably the the gap, and it's not simply based on the educational Programs, but it relates to the market of selling products, the software we use. That there's a real biophysical bias in what people are interested in, and and that's important to me as well because uh, I'm a physiologist by profession. So I've been that boffin wearing a white coat in the laboratory, taking the lactate samples, measuring VO2 max and thinking it's the most important thing in the world and arguing that to uh, coaches at heart at a very high level, and them completely ignoring me.
0: (laughs) Uh, Every coach out there feels that plight, by the way, just to to let you know. (laughs) Uh,
1: But as as a physiologist, thinking I'm a professional, I've worked really hard to gain my qualifications the professional accreditation, and then for people not to uh, listen, this is kind of tough. But it's the same as the coach-athlete relationship as well. And the clear gap is... The in psychosocial stuff, in relationships, and being able to develop relationships to understand the wants and needs of the athlete, or if you want to term them the client, then it's understanding the wants and needs of the client, and also understanding that humans aren't always logical or rational, and they don't always do what they're told. Uh, that's a normal part of the coaching process that, uh, well, coaches will tend to moan, uh, and complain that athletes don't give very good feedback. But that's normal. That's normal in yeah. my world as a lecturer, an educationalist as well. The students, uh, often give rubbish feedback too. But then, wh- as a coach, I need to think about that interface. It's a relationship. So my skill as a coach is to be able to develop a feedback loop, to develop a deep relationship, uh, to develop feedback with each other, to talk through conversations and to understand uh, the complexity uh, as a sports coach of uh, performance, of adaptation and how that adaptation works as well that it's not purely determined on training load whether that's volume and intensity whether you you do a vo2 max session a fartlek session or whatever it's interwoven with life experiences what's happening with the wife the children uh with work uh where we live in the world uh so so the Stressors in uh, Colorado in the mountains are very different to what they are uh, at sea level in Scotland. Uh, So that as coaches, we need to learn to be agile in multiple different environments to deal with these different challenges. Uh, And and I would suggest that most educational uh, programs use cookie cutter approaches, saying this is the way to do it. Here are the models we use. So periodization, for example, uh, that's an easy one to pick. So here's a periodized model. This is how uh, to use it. But the reality is, coaches, when we go and try and uh, apply the theory of BOMPA in a nice spreadsheet to say, this is how the program is going to work. uh, We spend a month developing the plan and two days in, uh, the athlete gets a cold and nothing works. And then we think we're rubbish. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So I I would suggest that educational programs need to support coaches to deal with that uncertainty also as a high performance coach working with some good level professionals uh, i would liken uh, m- my role as almost uh, a conductor of an orchestra to orchestrate a complex process that involves working with other people as well uh, uh And that may include psychiatrists when things go badly wrong uh, and and other experts. But as a coach, I want to be able to uh, orchestrate what others do. I want the skills, the expertise to uh, guide uh, other professionals. And simply by attending a short course for two days, uh, or three days doesn't necessarily equip, uh, coaches to deal with the complexities of that role of managing people, understanding behavior, uh, understanding how to provide feedback, how to deal with things when they go wrong. Uh, uh I've got, uh, three, uh, laws kirkland's laws of coaching first one is uh shit happens (laughs) (laughs) the second one is life is not fair
0: yeah yeah
1: and the third one is the goalposts change and these are the absolute realities of coaching they apply to every coach If I see a coach telling me everything's gone to plan, a session's been delivered as it was envisaged, uh, they've achieved all their goals with their athletes, uh, then I smell a funny smell. Uh, I, I, I don't believe them because it's not reflective of the experiences of the coaches that I speak to.
0: Well, because normally when you get that feedback, you're like coloring it with the crayon color that you want. Right. If it's all rosy, if you're a typically rosy, optimistic person, you're always going to view life and the training that your athletes are producing through that uh, through through that type of lens. And we want to, you know, we we want to kind of like fulfill our own destiny as coaches. And 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 I think a lot of that bias starts to come through in the in the in the conversations and in the feedback that you just mentioned where yes, athlete or coaches think that their athletes are doing everything, you know, as planned and the session's going great and the season's going great and things like that. And that's because they're starting from the framework that everything is going great, that everything I'm prescribing is the right prescription. And I'm going to be able to forecast the outcomes of, of how the athlete should be progressing based on, Whatever model that we have, uh, wh- whatever model that we have in front of us, and a lot of a lot of it is driven by something you mentioned, kind of on the onset of that answer, is, is this biophysical bias that we're awash with it, with kind of everything. To be honest with you, I spent a lot of time thinking about this over the past couple of days as I was, uh, as I was reading your paper. The, the paper points out that some of this bias is due to. Just the leaps in technology on the consumer side that uh, that we've experienced over the course of the past twenty years. And there's no better example of this than the the revolution of the of the onboard power meter in cycling. When mm, that beca- w- when that became more commercially available, meaning age group athletes and uh, as well as professional athletes could put it on their bike. They could immediately download it and then the tools to get that information from the bike into the hands of a practitioner, whether it was a coach or an athlete who was coaching themselves, became so seamless that started to create part of this biophysical bias that we now have, because it's a new shiny object that we can kind of like look at and we can measure ourselves. We're, li- we're literally measuring mm. ourselves day after day. But in addition to that, I think this biophysical bias also comes from the background of the athletes and the coaches, the coaches, and you're a great example mm. of this, Andy, you come from a physiology background, right? So you're, you have that inherent biophysical bias. <laughs> I, I kind of have the same thing yeah, as a biochemist.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, it's kind of, that journey started from uh, Chris Boardman when, Mm -hmm. so the British, I think it's fair to say he's a timed trialist. He he fell off all the time uh, in road races, but getting the world record, world our record and such Uh, and and that's really what spurned my interest is this is really exciting and what uh, Peter Keen, he's coach at the time and Chris did uh, sparked my interest and various other things developed my career because I was interested in the physiology and the numbers Uh, and it floats my boat but the more and more I got into coaching myself and then coming entering into the academic world, uh, it's probably a typical – I've written on it as well – the Dunning-Kruger effect. So I had worked <laughs> at one of the uh, world's leading national governing bodies where – we've won an unprecedented amount of Olympic medals and world championships that's translated into Tour de France wins and such Uh, and whilst I was backroom staff I still wore the t-shirt so it's kind of you build this belief that uh, you're also the world's greatest (laughs) at what you do. Uh, and I call it the magic t-shirt effect because you've got the t-shirt whether it says coach uh, or (laughs) you've got your federation's name on it it gives you magical skills and magical expertise Uh, but when I I came into the academic world and into the coaching world a new world somehow I managed to get a job in quite a a difficult area to get a job in uh, I realized goodness I, i really don't know uh, very much about coaching at all. It it was one of these lessons that I'm I'm speaking to people in other sports, reading more work and going, oh my goodness, uh, I'm really, really biased in my approach and my perception of, or illusion of expertise, even one of my favourite phrases. My illusion of expertise was absolutely profound. I I was kind of all right, I've been a coach educator working with hundreds of people. Uh, and then I started to recognize the error of my ways and what I was teaching and recognizing that I wasn't an expert in what I had been doing for the last however many years. And that that was pretty profound to say, I don't actually know what I'm talking about.
0: Well, because the craft of physiological analysis and the craft of coaching are two completely different things. All too often, we want to think that there's a, a larger Venn diagram overlap than there actually is between those two endpoints. And certainly there <laughs> is an overlap between those two. I mean, we can trace physiology to performance and, you know, we can track physiology and how physiology changes and performance does or does not change and, and kind of go that from uh, multiple different angles. But I, whenever whenever i I've, I've been seeing this more and more and more whenever i encounter physiologists even the ones over at, on the training center they realize their limitation of expertise and they can look at the physiology they can look at kind of like what's going on in the lab and what's going on from a physiological you know perspective and then they've kind of they've kind of like learned over the you know, just the past several years that the interpretation out in kind of the real world becomes very limited because that's such a narrow scope of mm. what they are seeing yeah. in terms of the entire, uh, in, to- in terms of the entire athlete performance uh, spectrum.
1: Absolutely. Uh, now, something else I was introduced to uh, in my current world is behavior change science as well. And, and that uh, It was something that uh, is employed extensively in uh, the health sciences in recognition that uh, implementation of evidence-based medicine wasn't very effective. Uh, That's that's such a
0: fascinating statement, by the way. Just that right there. Implementation of evidence-based medicine is not very effective
1: yeah so so that was the realization that all right we're producing this work to say that this method is best but it's not actually being implemented at the coalface in the wards in uh, the surgeries by general practitioners and such and the question is why uh, and the reasons are complex but they're they, they relate to the fact that humans aren't always logical, they're not rational, and there's institutional factors which sometimes prevent us doing what's uh, best or what's ideal. Certainly in the United States, uh, it's fair to say that uh, medicine is probably more about making money than it is about making people well. So that's... Uh, an institutional barrier to implementing good evidence-based practice as well. So, so I apply some of these approaches to coaching, and it surprises me that few others do that. Is recognition that everything we do as a coach, if we're being effective, is behaviour change. What we want to do is influence the behaviour of others uh, to result in positive enhancement to performance uh what often happens and this is the glass half uh, empty side of me is that what a lot of coaches do is make people worse uh so 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 we've got to recognize that and think well how do we actually make people better how do we make them healthier how do we influence behaviors in ways that uh help people adapt more effectively and that means understanding the whole person rather than simply what's happening at the mitochondria.
0: Well, and this dovetails into something that's that's also fascinating about something that I guess you postulated you you and your co-author kind of postulated uh, in the in some of the latter parts of the paper, and that is that retention. Should be the thing that coaches are focused on the most, and I extrapolated that kind of in two uh, two ways both the, the 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 retention of the athlete, how long the coach is actually working with the athlete, but also to your behavioral change piece, the compliance of the athlete as well and mm-hmm. i I've got this you know the, my coaching colleagues will you know, probably lament me for te- for telling the story ad nauseum because I feel somewhat vindicated now, you know, a decade removed from coming up with this policy. But uh, many years ago, I was asked to come up with a coaching quality assurance program across mm-hmm. our group of coaches. And it was not an easy task because as you can probably theorize or imagine... Our coaches wanted to base everything off of functional threshold power and lactate threshold pace and all of the uh, you know all the biophysical things that we were kind of talking about earlier. If I can get my athlete to move the needle on those things, that's how I should be rewarded. That's how the quality of my coaching should actually mm-hmm. be judged. But I came back at the end of the day and said, you know what? We're going to judge this on primarily, not exclusively, but primarily on your retention rates. And we had a way. You know, we're in the commercial space largely. So we have a way of judging this based on contract renewals and things like that, and about seventy-five percent of the coaches threw a complete hissy fit. But <laughs> but seriously, like they went berserk. They just you know they didn't think that it you know, had any kind of bearing on their uh, uh, on their coaching outcomes. But come three years later, our more se- our more senior and our more experienced coaches had far better retention rates. Than our more junior and less experienced coaches, and you know I kind of use that as a, as a as an experience lens to come back to this fact that you're absolutely correct that this behavioral change is the thing that we should be aiming at the most because then you can get the performance change from the behavioral change, and so I'm wondering if you had any additional thoughts on this retention aspect that coaches should be looking at that they're probably not even taking into consideration at this point.
1: Oh. It's a difficult one because it, it, it relates to how we see the world. That sometimes the most valuable things in life are things that we can't measure. Things, intangibles. Uh, uh, but we, we can measure, uh, retention rate. And, well, uh, I've worked with the guys at Training Peaks as well. And I think part of the, the buy-in and why we've developed a good relationship is that, well, They've got a commercial model as well, obviously. Yeah, exactly. Uh, they,
0: they, they, behave, uh, they they want high retention rates for sure.
1: <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and I'm probably one of these types of people that doesn't care too much about uh, money. I I just want to have a nice time in life and have nice relationships with with people. And that's where I get my worth. N- not through uh, any financial gain. But... Uh, these aren't dichotomous Uh, uh, i believe that through really effective coaching through building strong social connections strong relationships getting buy-in from athletes so it's not uh do as you're told or else so uh, so if we look at uh uh, I'll I'll be careful what I say uh, for fear of litigation, but uh, <laughs> there's a few high profile cases where the well-being of athletes, particularly in the United States, very fast runners, uh, have been on a big program and not had a very nice time of it. And I would suggest that there's power dynamics in that, in those environments where it's acquiescence to what the coach does under threat of sanction do as you're told or else and uh within that it it means accepting that what the coach says is right as well I, i don't accept that sometimes i'm wrong uh what's much uh better is uh that athletes do what you ask them to do through informed choice, mm-hmm. and uh, that means understanding what the needs of the athlete are. It means uh, well. Well, some of the uh, athletes that I've worked with, I would suggest, have had quite extreme exercise addiction. So that's a definable uh, psychiatric. Disorder. If you believe in such things, you can go through a tick box diagnostic uh, process to say that this person is uh, has exercise addiction, and as endurance coaches, we've all got experience of these people. So that in my decision making processes, I've got to understand those behaviours of the athlete too. So I'm almost think about myself uh, like an addiction counsellor so that the the <laughs> dose of exercise i suggest they do except that they'll probably go a bit over it sometimes so i might suggest they do a little bit less known fine well they'll do more uh, and in the long term i'm working with them to develop a healthy relationship with uh their sport uh i know that if a push them too hard if i support their uh potentially destructive perfectionist tendencies to want to push the barriers all the time that can be destructive it can be maladaptive it can be harmful so it's understanding the athlete at a deep level to understand where their behaviors are coming from why they behave the way they do and being able to uh make my decisions based on my appraisal of of those behaviours, as well as listening to the athlete voice. What do they want? What do they think uh, they need? Uh, an example would be uh, an athlete I was working with went over to a, a big event and found themselves in an environment with uh, another 10 professionals who are known to be amongst the top in the world. And they're all pushing each other. They're all f- influencing each other. So that as a coach, uh, me coming along and saying, oh, what they're doing is nonsense. <laughs> uh, the, the athlete doesn't always buy into it. They're yeah. just as or not more influenced by what their peers are doing. So that I've got to consider what the peers are doing as well and tailor my coaching Uh to the wants and the needs of the athlete and that's really nuanced uh, and sometimes we we get it wrong but to coach in such a manner really knows meaning your athlete knowing your athletes at a very deep level
0: well and here's the limiting factor with that Andy that you can probably appreciate a lot having your, your amount of experience actually working at the coalface with athletes it's time you need to, t- and, and it's time kind of along, along two different courses. The first off is the amount of time that you can just spend with the athlete, communicating with them, not prescribing the training, but communicating with them on a weekly basis. And yeah. you can recognize this in the commercial space. Most coaches have their kind of practice set up, which at the end of the day, they're monetizing their time. Right. So they want to be as efficient. Yeah, they want to be absolutely. as they want to be as efficient as possible. They want efficient systems to build. They want efficient systems com- to communicate. And it, those that that efficiency can and usually does compromise the depth of the relationship between the coach and the athlete. And I've seen all kinds of models. And I will raise my hand mm-hmm. as as making a big mistake with this uh when when uh earlier in my career where I worked with as little as 10 athletes or five athletes, and that was not enough repetition to be very good. But then I also Mm -hmm. worked with as much as 200 athletes, and that's not near that's that doesn't allocate nearly enough time to know athletes from a personal, from a psychological, from a lifestyle uh, level. And eventually, the medium is some is somewhere in between, it's different for everybody, but I point out those two endpoints. Just to illustrate the fact to your earlier point that when we talk about how deep you can actually know an athlete, how much you can actually know about their, their behavioral patterns in the commercial space, a big limiting factor on that is just simply time. And coaches, one of the, one of the things that they need to do, in addition to all this other stuff that your, that your fantastic paper talked about, is just set up their coaching practice so that they can actually do that. And a lot of them do not. They just don't allocate the correct amount of time in order to do that because they just don't understand how long it actually takes.
1: Mm. and I think that comes down there's a really good model from researchers in the UK called professional judgement and decision making so Andy Abrahams, Dave Collins and such Uh, uh, and I'm sure you know as well that the more people uh, you work with the quicker it is to (laughs) identify what behaviours you expect from (laughs) individuals, it's almost like the the stereotyping Uh, so uh i have often joke when i'm developing other coaches is to joke about uh coach education courses so uh, i'll say that you're guaranteed to have uh the egotistical know-it-all who wants to speak all the time uh <laughs> through to through to slightly humble people who listen intently uh i've got to be careful here and the Underconfident female who's yeah. an absolute genius that knows everything that needs to be known, yet they think they're rubbish. So yeah. w- we can stereotype quite quickly and almost taxonomize uh, individuals uh, uh, and tailor our offers based on our perceptions of people. the The commercial side is really, really important as well so what what's the break even what's where can coaches uh make a living Uh, i've been fortunate enough uh not to need to make a living from coaching uh i'll typically only work with people who a i think can use my expertise and b who i really like uh and uh with those that can are good to work with so during lockdown i semi-retired i had some issues with my eyes i was struggling to do my job because i couldn't see properly uh uh and i semi-retired from coaching and i was really enjoying that time it's kind of christmas day not having someone call me up and ask a daft question uh and it took uh an Olympic champion to come along and interview me (laughs) to be their coach to consider coming back. Mm -hmm. And that's because the making money, I've got a a day job in a university. So so that's not a consideration for me. If you need 30, 40, 50 clients to keep a roof over your head, you need to develop effective systems to communicate, to maintain retention rates. And that's not easy. Uh, there's different ways and means to do it. There's also uh, a place in the market for cookie-cutter approaches. Using So for new people to sport who haven't been coached before, who aren't very fit, uh, whatever they do is likely to improve their fitness anyway. So a cookie-cutter approach is absolutely uh But when... Uh, they may hit uh, a rock in the road where they may be struggling, then it's really important to give them a positive experience when things aren't going to plan, where the adaptation slows or there's a plateau. Uh, so it's being able to build that in your coaching system. And and I'm not sure there's a simple way to say this is the way to do it.
0: Yeah. In my, in my experience... Um having a like a business structure that tries to be everything to everybody is 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 really difficult to pull off because you have the cookie cutter side at one end of the spectrum and the price points are completely different and the the what we would call leverage which is essentially the coach athlete ratio mm-hmm. Is completely different. It's one to a hundred, or maybe even one to two hundred, or maybe one to infinity. Right? If you're just literally delivering static mm. training programs, and then you have the what, what I'll call kind of the commercial space or the age group space, where the price points are typically ten x of the static uh, of the static tr- of the static plans. You're definitely monetizing the athletes individually. Meaning you're monetizing your time. Mm. You're going to charge a certain you know rate and things like that. And your ratios are one to thirty, or maybe one to forty, or maybe maybe one to one to fifty is kind of the highest that that I've usually seen seen in that space. And then you have the elite athletes. Where it's a completely different ballpark because you need so much time to work with each one of those individual elite athletes. And then how you monetize it is really all over the map to, to point out to your story, right? Some some people like in your position, they're using it just because they want to do it, right? They don't need to kind of like make, make ends meet. Other coaches that mm-hmm. are just working with elite athletes, and you see this in the triathlon space, they take a cut. Of their winnings and i'm not saying that that's the right economic model i don't think that that's the right economic model but it's different so that's what i was doing that's uh. what
1: i would do it's kind of it's like 10 percent of winnings and uh that kind of worked for me because it, it was i think it's important not to do things for free that's a tendency (laughs) in the uk a lot of people do because they want to give back to the sport no because people value value if you charge more they think they're getting a better uh, product so yeah yeah, it's important to charge so so that was my thinking behind it yes i like doing it uh but it's important that athletes recognize the investment in the, of the expertise.
0: Yeah, exactly. I guess my point with that is, is the, like the way that the models have emerged are so drastically different on every level from the price points to how you're monetizing it, whether you're monetizing it on an instance or on a monthly basis or on earnings or kind of some some combination of all of those, that it's hard to be everything to everybody. You can, try, you can try to have as big of a, you know, as big of a footprint as possible across all of those, but they're really kind of like different products, which I think leads to a lot of the consternation of the end users, which are the athletes, whether they're elite athletes or whatever. A lot of that consternation kind of comes from the fact that this sea of products starts to have all of these overlaps and they start to feel, you know, just unfulfilled on some level. Because the Mm -hmm. expectations of what they have, the expectations of the deliverables can, in some cases, be starkly different than what the coach is actually designing the product to actually deliver. Yes, yes. You know what? So, this kind of, like, leads me to another neat transition point. So, one one of the cool things in your papers is where do coaches spend their time? right? Are they spending their time doing admin? Are they building programs? Like where actually is their time being spent? And the, every time I've ever looked at this and your paper was the one, the, the, this is one of the first chances I've, I've, or one of the first opportunities I've had to actually look at it systematically. We've done it internally within our own, uh, uh within our own coaches. And they've also done it at the NGB level and things like that. But the one thing I always come away with is we don't spend enough time communicating with the athlete. We spend a shit ton of time analyzing files and doing programming and not nearly enough time actually like talking to them over the phone or via video chat or something like that. That is at least my impression. And the paper kind of alludes to that a little bit. I was wondering if you could expand upon your thoughts on that a little bit
1: Mm, oh i it it was quite difficult in the analysis of the data actually how do i present it yeah and and what i suggested is that it, it relates to what uh we were talking about just a second ago is that coaching is a cottage industry yes uh and uh to maintain a living, we we do different elements to keep the roof over our head. What interests us, what motivates us, what we need to do, uh, and that's highly dependent on the individual coach. So, coming up with a universal model of this is how coaches spend time uh, probably would be a waste of my time analyzing. <laughs> any deeper. It depends on the coach. So we have uh coaches who will do face to face sessions, uh going to the track, going to the swimming pool, doing cycling sessions, working with young developing athletes, developing what uh those participation people who just want to go out and jog, and they'll do a variety of different things. So that uh I think it's good to conceptualize it like a cottage industry
0: like me i'm Um, traveling around them literally you you asked me from the onset am i in a camper van and the answer is yes i pulled over in rawlings wyoming to do this podcast with you because (laughs) you know three days ago i was in i was in at madeira islands off the coast of portugal or it's a portuguese island and now i'm traveling out to california to go to another race i choose to spend my time that way as a deliberate mm. part of my coaching practice, but not all coaches do that. To your point of it's different mm. for everybody.
1: Yes, but I think it's useful for individual coaches and it's something we do on our MSC program as well is get coaches to define uh and model their coaching process yeah. i.e what do they do as a coach uh th- there was some good work by uh ryan and mallet so steve ryan and cliff mallet in uh australia looking at the coaching process of high performing coaches at uh, an australian institute level uh, and and that was really interesting as well looking at what they Actually, did so. Some of it was programming. Some of it was sports science support. Some of it was dealing with the the media. Uh, a lot of it was dealing with the bullshit of working in high performance sport. Uh, <laughs> Admin. So, <laughs> yes, and, and uh, the powers that be that ask you to do unreasonable things that don't contribute to performance no. as well. Uh, so I think, as indiv- for individual coaches listening, it, it's a really good thing to do is map out what your coaching process is. Exactly what you say. Uh, how much time do you spend on programming? How much time do you spend on paperwork? Uh, how much at the coach athlete interface and in developing? Relationships, do you do? Uh, perhaps looking at those retention rates and looking at gaps within your process to say, is there something that I could do better, more effectively, to improve my retention rates? So it could be uh, more effective marketing for some, uh, for others uh, who are spending most of the time designing training programs. It's possible to monetize that, but I also allude to the fact in the paper that I'm not so sure that that market will will be available in 10 years anyway because of artificial intelligence and such, so that a large part of the market may be taken over by AI in the future, so that these the the social relationships, the developing the brand and and being a, a... an approachable coach who uh, athletes really value. It's not a, like going into a shop and buying uh, a coffee. When I, I'm a bit of a coffee geek as well. But if I go into a cafe... And the barista doesn't look up and say hello to me and give me a bit of chat. Uh, and if I ask them about the beans, where have the beans come from? And they go, oh, I don't know. Uh, then <laughs> I'll probably think inside my head uh, a swearing word and uh, think, oh, I'm not going back there. Uh, whereas when I go into my favorite cafe and they say, hello, Andy, uh, oh, we've got this uh, great new uh, Ethiopian Yirgacheffe that's got this taste. I think you'll <laughs> really like it. You like that fruity sort of uh, high note on the coffee. Well, then I'll... I want to go back to that coffee shop time and time again. That will be my choice because I know they value me as a customer. They've invested in that time to know that I really enjoy Ethiopian Yergachev.
0: Yeah, we we have been on your point with artificial intelligence kind of taking over. We've actually been looking at this not just recently, but maybe for the last mm-hmm. 4 or 5 years since it started to when back when it was like really nascent um and not a lot of people kind of understood what was going to happen. We started to we started to theorize and put things in place in terms of how it was going to impact our business and you know the 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 summary of all of that is is it's going to take the bottom part of the market the static training program part of the market yeah. or the, or the coaches that high and or the coaches that have high leverage like 1 to 100 or 1 to 200 where a lot of their product is program delivery it's just going to take them out of the market or largely eliminate that piece and really put the highlight on the coaches that can create deep interpersonal relationships with their athletes because the programming side of it is going to be so greatly enhanced by using machine-based learning and and and, and a combination of that with uh, uh with with artificial intelligence, and all and so much so it on, honestly influences our hiring process. Once again, we're in the commercial mm-hmm. space, right? And. 10 years ago, we're trying to hire people that can create whiz-bang programming because that's what the consumer wanted, right? The consumer wanted like the most effective programming side of things to know that they were doing the right things. They're spending their time wisely in order to achieve, you know, whatever outcome objectives that they have. It changes our hiring process because now we have to like look at coaches that have, and we should have been doing this from the onset, better interpersonal skills. Right, because that's going to be the differentiating factor in a in, in in a in a competitive marketplace, and I don't think we're that far away from it. It's maybe a few more years before that before that AI technology gets good enough to where the programming side starts to take more and more care of itself. And honestly, I kind of welcome that that transition because it you know it puts the I think it puts a bigger spotlight on the coaches that are coaching more effectively using interpersonal skills as, uh, as, as one of their predominant tools versus the programming side as one of their dominant tools.
1: No, absolutely. I think the cream needs to rise to the top. Uh, and, uh, the coaches that are able to do a really good job that are expert who have invested in their own development as well, uh, will, uh, will prosper. Uh, those that haven't won't have a sustainable business model. It, it, it's as simple as that. Uh, so I would prefer uh, there to be a smaller market, but a better market yes. uh, where uh, clients, if we want to call them clients or athletes, have a really good relationship with their coach. I think sometimes the, the challenge right now is that athletes and clients don't really know what to expect from a coach uh if well the market has kind of told them that you should expect a training program from your coach exactly so if they get a training program exactly. then they're getting the program the the product they expected and they're not expecting more until it goes wrong and then when you ask deeper questions of Tell me about your relationship with the coach. Tell me how often you chatted with them. Tell me what you know about them. Well, I don't know that. And as the expert, I might be pulling a face and going, hmm, all right then. Uh, So that, uh, uh, and I I don't necessarily think a lot of coaches recognise the importance of the uh, uh, psycho, social element of coaching either. Uh I I recently did a uh another podcast uh with the guys at Fast Talk. Uh don't know if that's a good or a bad word with you, but <laughs> we we were talking about yeah, the, yeah. the it was uh with Michael Crawley who wrote yeah. an excellent book uh about running uh in Ethiopia as well, how the runners use their uh environment to uh enhance training it's similar to my experiences uh in in Kenya as well is that it's not necessarily just about going and uh running a marathon pace or whatever it's about where we do it who we do it mm-hmm. with uh, who our training partners are uh if we want to take in the special powers of nature if that floats our boat and it gives us magic powers then that's great it's similar to some of my training prescription where i would say right today i want you to go and run uh around the golf course because i know it's a nice soft terrain it's got lumps in it uh that'll be kind to your legs i don't want you to maintain a pace i want you to maintain a feeling because uphill you'll be slower downhill uh, you'll be faster so just go out and enjoy it in that environment and some of the underpinning theories influencing what i'm thinking may be relating to the bone modeling and remodeling response mm-hmm. how, how that affects the strength of the bones uh how the strength of the bones is influenced by running at uh, different frequencies. so the frequency is different when we're on concrete to grass to running in the mountains so we want to increase the bandwidth because it results in positive adaptations to the bones it's just it's another level of the physiology but looking at the bone modeling remodeling response uh, which is probably probably uh not same importance as what happens at the mitochondria right. but it still is kind of is important to have healthy uh, bones, because bones are living tissue. So, what can we do to develop that?
0: Well, run in different environments. One of the things that you're mentioning between the mitochondrial side, which is that's kind of had the spotlight recently, right? With all of the zone two uh, phenomenon that's been uh, that's been mm. going on. These things go through cycles, right? And you and I have seen yeah. we've seen we've seen, a, we've seen a few cycles. We've been we've both been around the block several, several times mm-hmm. by now, and w- we often refer to or I often refer to coaching as a practice where there are a lot of individual practitioners out there. There's a lot of people, especially in the commercial space, which is predominantly where, where I'm in. They hang a shingle up, they call themselves a coach. And there's a really broad array, as we were talking about earlier, as to how they become developed as coaches, how they continue to facilitate becoming better at their craft of coaching and some of them take no time doing it right they just do the same thing that they did in college or they're doing as an athlete and other coaches take and an, what i would call an inordinate amount of time actually doing that so much so that it detracts from them actually coaching right and, and, and everywhere and everywhere else in between but one of the phenomena one of the really phenomenal aspects of that of the diversity of that learning is this is Shows up in the cyclical nature of what becomes popular and what becomes, uh, I guess, popular practice. And whether it's zone two or their Norwegian training model or whatever, it tends to be driven by other coaches and other athletes that have had success. And the, the yes. coaching space as a whole decides to take this like paint by numbers approach. Well, if it worked for Ellie Kipchoge, then I'm going to take this and I'm going to modify it for my three-hour marathoner. Or if it worked for this high-profile triathlete, I'm going to take it and I'm going to modify it for this. In my world, the the trail and ultra space, if it worked for Killian Jornet, I'm going to take it and <laughs> modify it to a certain extent and I'm going to apply it with this athlete. And I want to get your perspective on that. And more importantly, for the coaches out there that are listening to this, as well as the self-directed athletes that are listening to this, what they should really be doing to better inform themselves as a coach or better inform themselves in terms of uh, if they're a self-coached athlete how they should actually look at these different case studies and things that get popular and use that to assim- and use that to kind of like drive what they're doing either for themselves or for their athletes
1: Mm, it's a really difficult one because there's a dichotomy in there which i'm sure you recognize as well and that i would describe myself as a a generalist without a definable brand which uh probably means my profile if i was in that commercial space wouldn't be so pronounced uh so that having a thing helps you develop a brand which draws in uh clients and athletes uh and then uh you perceive yourself to be more successful because you're making money and you've got lots of clients r- independent of retention rate uh, so there th- there's part of the the dichotomy uh, i i would suggest that uh What I do on the program that I work on is, first of all, to highlight to coaches or help them understand what they don't know rather than giving them a whole lot of information on this is how you coach Uh, my lecturing approach is to tell stories to say I'll go away and read this paper and see what uh, you think, it's even this same as the construction of the paper we're talking about today, that It was really difficult to publish because uh, there was elements of me in it that it didn't have a clear identity, a clear brand. (laughs) I I wanted the reader to read it and make up their own mind what it meant to them, which is a difficult sell. But on the other hand, uh, fundamentally, what I'm doing is supporting other coaches to develop their bullshit filter uh, through asking questions of themselves through a deeper reflection uh and asking for deeper justification behind uh why something works. Now when I was doing my undergraduate uh study I had this uh biomechanist uh professor uh Bill Balzopoulos uh and, and we used to pull his leg because what Bill would used to say is what's the mechanism? What are the mediating factors? Why does that work? Why do you think that? Simple questions like that allow us to interrogate our own practice. So why this approach and not another approach? Why is this likely to be effective? What is the mechanism from which this will work? Now, there's a really uh, good paper uh, from uh John Stakowski uh which is about developing your your bullshit filter and biases so it, it's kind of talked to you earlier about the the magic t-shirt you work for a a, a federation you've got the magic t-shirt mm-hmm. on so people listen to you because it gives you credibility uh i would suggest that the authorities can be wrong and that's what john in his paper says as well is to challenge those in authority uh if it's a national governing body i worked for one for six or seven years and my reflection was what we were teaching was bullshit a lot of the time uh so that it's really important to independently verify facts for ourselves to think why does that work but the simple thing is to ask am i improving Yes. Am I at a plateau? Am I getting worse? These are real simple metrics that we can measure, whether that's what, in an ultra-running environment. Am I getting faster? Am I maintaining pace? Am I getting slower? Or am I able to maintain a slightly slower pace but over a longer distance? What, what, What's my intention? Am I prepared for the demands... Of the event that I'm doing. So a good example, uh, my partner, uh, she's doing ultra trail Snodonia Oh, in yeah. A few weeks. Yeah. 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 That's uh, hardcore. Jesus it is hardcore. <laughs> good for her. Jeez. Uh, so, but we went to a few years ago, uh, and, uh, I, I was sat upon, uh, near the peak of a mountain in Wales uh and there there was all these people uh who have maybe done utmb some of the big european big international events looking absolutely petrified yeah uh, because the terrain was uh different to say utmb which isn't well i've even ran some of that course and managed to uh deal with Uh, Most of it until I broke my arm (laughs) tripping over a rock. The question is, were they prepared for the demands of that event? Had they done the research of what the terrain was like? Can they mentally deal with that? And these are questions as coaches we need to be asking as well. How well prepared are athletes to deal with those challenges? Uh, So I I know on one part of the course, uh, I saw... Uh, several athletes pull out because they were too scared to go over part of the course.
0: Yeah. So they're not ready for that demand.
1: They're not ready for the demand in my world of triathlon. uh, When I'm doing triathlon, I'm standing on the start line of an Ironman and athletes are going, I'm really scared of this water. Look at the waves. Exactly the organizers cutting courses short because the competitors can't deal with those demands. I'm thinking, well, I've swam in December in Scotland in big waves off the coast in uh, very low temperatures. So it's bring it on. This is so much fun. Uh, And the big waves are something to have fun in. And Mm if lots of other people are terrified because they've not prepared for these demands. The simple question is, will this help me manage the demands of the event? Will it help me go faster? Uh, Am I adequately prepared for uh, those demands? And how, how does the information I'm engaging with help prepare me for those demands? The appropriate training load is only one element of preparing for these complex demands
0: you're ta- like the way that a lot of classical models will divide that up is are you training for capacity or are you training for the demands? And not that those are completely separate things, but you can either build capacity, build whatever physiological, psychological, whatever type of capacity, or you can take a demand side approach and look at what are the demands of the event and then ready the athlete uh, for, for the, for those demands. Um, I, I want to, I want to just add one point to this since we're kind of talking to the coaches out there and I'm going to just use a, like a personal experience of mine. One of the most influential things that I've ever had happen to me in my coaching career was working with very experienced coaches that could literally sit over my shoulder and they could listen to every phone call that I had. They could review every piece of training that I, uh, that I wrote and they would ask me one simple question. Why? why are you doing what you're doing? And that environment of having somebody more senior to you is a hard one to recreate unless you have those people available to you. But it shouldn't stop there because as you just mentioned earlier, you can't just take it on authority, right? We should be criticizing and be critical of Information that's coming at us from kind of every different angle from people that have been in the sport mm-hmm. for long periods of time, or people who might actually kind of perceived uh, a, a perceived authority, and I, I use that as a little part of uh, just the short upbringing that 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 I've had to say that it was impactful for me because not to make me justify what I was doing, but just to make me think about why I was doing what I was doing. And did I have a justification for even things as why do you have a 45 minute recovery run instead of a 60 minute recovery run, right? Why is this Mm. specific duration like this? It's not that one is the perfect answer or the other one is the perfect answer. It's just why are you actually getting to the answer that you got to that became extremely important for me?
1: And I think, yeah, what what's really helped me and my journey to ask those questions is n- not limiting myself to, uh, one sport. Yes. So as a physiologist, mm-hmm. I, I worked in multiple different sports. If you're familiar with the sport of cur- curling, for example. So quite a big Olympic, yeah. yeah. wor- worth a few yeah. Olympic medals. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but my first experience of, uh, Curling in Scotland was going in to meet a number of uh, coaches and then sitting down as an endurance athlete as well, asking if I wanted a whiskey during the, the meeting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, one of the, in fact, uh, they were an Olympic champion with a cigarette in their mouth. Yeah. I said, Oh my goodness. And I think my respect changed a little bit then. My social interactions were probably not as positive the, as they could. But when I started to understand that environment more, it started to make more sense. Yeah. It's the same with the adventure racing world, yeah. in, in which uh, I've been to a number of events. So the World Series, for example, and those that have been world Championship champions, I've gone into a shop in a small village. The only food available is a fish supper, so deep fried fish and chips. <laughs> and they buy two fish suppers <laughs> because they, they need the calories. It's a professional behavior. So we've got all those different sporting cultures where there's different ways of conceptualizing performance uh, of uh, different ways of being and doing in that environment a very profound experience for some coaches that I was supporting on a mentorship program in cycling was to take them to Murrayfield, which is the Scottish rugby big international stadium, to meet the rugby coaches on the performance program there. And again it was profound. The yeah. the coaches in rugby did their practices were highly professional. The practices they were using were highly advanced. And very different to what happened in cycling yep uh and the coaches were wow that's a different way of doing it i've not thought about that so it's really easy to get so culturally bound in our own sport that we don't see yep. outside that very restrictive bubble and when we do It kind of means I I can sit down with uh, someone in Formula One and discuss how to enhance performance in Formula One in whitewater kayaking and such, despite not having a great knowledge of these sports, because I I, I see things through a really broad lens. Uh, And I think that's what I recommend of other coaches is, go out and see other sports, learn about cultures in other sports, other practices, other ways of talking about performance. Uh, uh, and that's where innovation comes from, where true in- innovation comes from, is operating outside that really small bubble that uh, there's a tendency for us all to operate within.
0: We, we definitely get that in my sport of trail and ultra running. Where it's very insular, and we don't have a lot of scope—not even into the other endurance sports. To be honest with you, if you just take mm. like cycling, and triathlon, and running, and things like that, maybe maybe marathon running might be the uh, might be the best uh, best parallel. But we tend to be very insular within our sport, and what kind of has worked within their sport, and certainly not to the level of. Hey, let's look at the motorsports. Look at the team sports. Look at the stick and ball sports and the power base sports, and 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 see what we can what we can learn from those. And I do hope that that starts to come along uh, more and more amongst the group of coaches that 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 I work with in the trail and ultra space, and that I know in the trail and ultra space. Because once again, going back to my personal experience, I've been profoundly uh, impacted by. The experiences that I've had working within the motorsports and working within the team sports and the hockey players and things like that, that I can now translate into, into a, a lot of different contexts. Um, Andy, mm. we're going to let you go. This was really fun. Um, I, 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 yeah,
1: it's, uh, it's too much fun.
0: It, it is. We could go on for forever. I do hope that, uh, we get together for a run or a bike ride whenever you're up in Colorado. Um, I'm going to link the, uh, the paper in the show notes, but where can the listeners find out a little bit more about you, the work you do and the courses that you teach? Uh,
1: so well, the best way is from my Twitter. So Andy Kirkland 71. So that tells you my age. Uh, and I, so, so Twitter is where I share lots of my views uh, and uh, I'm a lecturer at the University of Stirling and we deliver uh, a programme in sports performance coaching. Uh, I'll be careful in how I say it. Our website isn't that well developed, but uh, if anyone wants to reach out to me, I'm easy to find and I'm absolutely delighted to have a conversation with other coaches. What I'll also do, Jason, is uh, I'm looking at uh, doing a webinar. Uh, I'm not quite sure exactly when. I'm just trying to align the planets with, with different people, but it'll give uh, coaches an opportunity to come in and have a chat about the paper too and implications on their own coaching practice. So I'm looking to do that in the next few months is to hold an online event, maybe do a, a, a small presentation and then open it up for uh, wider dialogue. So I'll let you know about that as well and you can maybe share it with your listeners and that, that would be great.
0: Absolutely. 100%. We've actually shared that paper amongst our own internal, uh, group of coaches and we've already had a lot of really good dialogue on it. So I would love to see and love to hear other people's perspective on it as well, because, um, uh, we can't learn enough about how each other learn, how we all learn as coaches, because it is a very, as you mentioned, a cottage industry in a very fractured marketplace. And I think, uh, we would serve our athletes much, much better by coming up with better practices on how to learn and how to develop and how to become better practitioners within our space.
1: Yeah, or simply through reading the paper and understanding how coaches actually learn. Exactly. It's something that we we don't often consider, uh, but that's an important part of the foundation of the paper is this is how coaches learn. This is how they gain knowledge. Uh, this is how I may talk about knowledge as well from an educational perspective. And it's not a dialogue we often have in the coaching space.
0: Yes. So let's have more of Mandy. I uh, appreciate your time. Absolutely. And uh, links to everything will be in the show notes.
1: Great. Lovely to meet you, Jason.
0: All right, folks, there you have it. There you go. Much thanks to Andy for coming on the podcast. And I'm I cannot tell you guys that are listening out there today how appreciative I am of Andy's work and how much it has formed and molded and shaped how I think coaches should develop as professionals. I hope all the coaches that are out there that are listening to this podcast. Go and read Andy's paper, take it to heart, and hopefully you change some of how you develop as a professional in order to serve your athletes the best. Appreciate the heck out of all you listeners. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends, your family, or maybe your coach if you think that there is something valuable within this podcast that he or she can take away from it to make themselves better and help you become a better athlete. That is it for today, folks. And as always, we will see you out on the trails.